Good morning, Highland Park. How are y'all doing this morning? My name is Lake Slaybach. I am the family pastor here. And as we get ready to dive into the Word this morning, I, Brent just did a great job plugging VBS. Um, I will throw another plug in there. It is one of the easiest invitations to church you will ever have with a family. Hey, how does three nights of free childcare sound? That's a, that's a really easy in there for you. Of course, it's a lot more than that, but that'll start the conversation. Uh, well, before we dive into Haggai chapter one, I think in the Bibles in the rows, it's gonna be 791, that's the page number. Uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. God, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, for your generosity to us. Uh, as we dive into Haggai chapter one this morning, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would clear our minds, help us focus on you, that your word would, would grow and take root in our hearts and lead to deeper, deeper love and obedience to you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Haggai chapter one. Uh, before we get into it, has anybody ever had somebody tell them it's, it's kind of an acquired taste, right? Like maybe they're eating something, they're drinking something, or maybe it's not food or drink at all. Maybe it's like a design or a piece of clothing, a fashion statement that they're trying to make, and you're like, eh, I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't know if you can pull that shirt off. Maybe you're thinking about this shirt right now, uh, and, and they just say, well, it's an acquired taste. And, and this can kind of be offensive, right? Like, oh, I'm sorry my palate is not quite as refined as yours. Excuse me. It's an acquired taste. Something that's like that for me that I've never acquired and I don't have any desire to acquire a taste for is dark chocolate. I don't like it. I like milk chocolate, it's sweet. I like white chocolate, it's sweet. Why should I want my chocolate to be bitter? People say it's an acquired taste, no thank you. Something I have acquired a taste for is coffee, okay? When I was in high school, coffee was not my thing. I would go to Starbucks and get a caramel frappuccino. Now, for those of you who really love coffee, you're right now thinking, Lake, it's not coffee, it's ice cream, don't say that. And I, I'm gonna say I agree 100%, it's not coffee. And those of us that love caramel frappuccinos would also say, we don't care that it's not coffee, it's just really, really good. But then I went to college, and college boys are maybe not the most forgiving when you step up to order and you say, I'll have a caramel frappuccino. It's maybe not the manliest drink you can order when you step up at Starbucks, right? And so slowly I moved away from the caramel frappuccino and I started doing mochas, that was a little bit better. I started getting regular coffee and just putting tons of cream and sugar in it, like mostly cream and sugar and then a little coffee at the end. And then I graduated from college. And I started working and I realized, man, I am drinking a lot of cream and sugar. And it's not exactly the cornerstone of a, a well-balanced diet. And so I started, I started putting less cream, less sugar, more coffee, more coffee, until one day I was drinking black coffee. And I started to love black coffee. And then you discover other things. When you get into black coffee, you're like, oh, so there's more than Folgers and Starbucks. Oh, so you can get the bean and you can grind it yourself and you can, you can do a Chemex or a French press or a pour over. There's, there's so much to learn and love about the world of coffee. It's an acquired taste. If, if the goal had been for me in high school to love coffee, I was far from it. 
I, I didn't love coffee. In fact, I loved all the other things that you could put into coffee. And I didn't wake up one morning thinking, man, you know what? I think I want a cup of black coffee today. But slowly, over time, I, I put less and less cream and sugar. I put more and more coffee. And, and, and now I love, I love black coffee. My desires have changed. Today, when we go into Haggai, we're going to be picking up the story of Israel where at a point where they don't exactly have a refined palate. If the goal for them was to love and desire the things of God more than anything else, they were far from that goal. This is a time where they had added so much of their own desires to the mix that someone who did love the things of God might look at it and say, what, what is this? And that's what God and Haggai are going to ask them today. As you, as you turn to Haggai chapter 1, some of you are probably already there, let me give you just a brief history of kind of where we, at, where we are at. We are, we are with Israel. They've come out of captivity. It's been about 18 years, okay? So we're like 520 B.C. If you needed to know the B.C., that's where we're at. We're at like 520 B.C. They've been out of captivity for 18 years. When they were released from captivity, they were given one job, rebuild the temple, Go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. Now, Haggai is the one that's going to be speaking. He's the prophet. And we don't know that much about Haggai. Haggai has uh, his name mentioned 11 times in the Old Testament. Nine of those are in his own book, so he does a good job shouting himself out. But the only thing we do know, we don't know his family, we don't know his origin story, we don't know if he had kids, we don't know what he was doing before he was a prophet. What we do know is that he is the messenger of the Lord. And why is that important? It's important because the God of the universe who inspired all scripture and knit Haggai together in his mother's womb and knows everything there is to know about Haggai says, here's the one thing you know, you need to know. When Haggai speaks, I speak. And so when Haggai speaks, God's people listen. Haggai chapter one, we're gonna start in verse two. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in, in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Another translation says, think about what you've been doing. I'm sure we've all had somebody say that to us before. Israel's out of captivity, a captivity that they found themselves in because of their disobedience to the Lord. And now they're just 18 years removed and whether it's because the going got tough, or maybe they just got distracted, or possibly they were just straight up selfish, God is going to confront a glaring inconsistency in the life of the Israelites. God's people say it's not time to rebuild God's temple, but they've rebuilt their own homes and made them very comfortable. It says that they're paneled homes. That paneling would have been associated with two things in the Old Testament, the temple would have had paneling, and the homes of royalty would have had paneling. 
One of the, one of the biggest advantages of being in deep, committed relationships with people is that they tend to shine a light on areas of our life where we're inconsistent, right? I didn't say one of the most pleasant parts or the most enjoyable parts of those relationships, but, but one of the most advantageous. Maybe it's a spouse if you're married. Maybe it's a friend or a group of friends. They have a way of finding parts of our lives where we are inconsistent and being like, hey, what's going on over there? I, I, I think we've all had this happen. We, maybe, maybe we have been beating the drum with our spouse saying, hey, we need to save some more money. We need to put some more money aside. We got things coming up we need to pay for. We don't need to do this or that. We need to put it to the side. But then we forget our lunch, right? We forget our lunch and our spouse is like, hey, I see Chick-fil-A on the debit card. Can you explain that one? I might be ratting myself out. Or, or maybe, maybe you had a really long week of work and you worked like 41 hours, like way more than you're supposed to and you just needed some time to relax, and it, it just happened to be the Saturday that your friend was moving, and that's not up to you. You're not the one that calls the shots. You just needed some time to yourself, and so sorry I can't help. But now you're moving, and it's like, hey, all hands on deck. I don't care that there's a family reunion. I need everybody. We can be inconsistent. Or maybe you have a big issue with company A because they promote values and ideals that you, you just don't align with. But while company B promotes those same values and ideals, they also have a product or service that you have to have. It's embarrassing. It's challenging. It can be downright hard when we're confronted with our own inconsistencies, the way that the Israelites are being confronted here. And that's because oftentimes inconsistency reveals our hearts. What we say and what we do when they don't match we can find our hearts over with what we do. And, and Israel's being confronted by this right now. God is confronting inconsistency. He's saying, okay, so, so it's too difficult to all work together to build my house. That's too hard. But it's not too hard to work individually to build yourself each a home. Oh, okay, okay, Israel, it's, it's too costly to pull together all the resources that I gave you to build my house, but it's not too costly to individually use those resources to build each of you a paneled house. It's inconsistent. It doesn't line up. What they say and what they do are different, and it's revealing idolatry in the lives of the Israelites. They were more concerned with their own comfort, with their own ability to control their surroundings than they were with obedience to the Lord. They, they said it wasn't time to do what he had asked them. They didn't have the resources necessary to build the temple. But what their actions show is that they actually do have those resources. They're just choosing to allocate them differently. The resources meant to go towards building God's house, his time, money, lumber, were going instead towards their own homes and their own comfort. We all have inconsistencies, right? If you're sitting here thinking about how consistent you are, you might be being inconsistent. There's places in our walks with the Lord where we have made excuses from time to time, where, where we say, well, I will obey as soon as I iron this stuff out over here. Uh, well, I, I'm, I am going to serve, I'm going to serve the church, God. I just need more time before I do that. Well, I'm, I'm going to give. I'm going to tithe. You know I've done it in the past. I'm just taking a break right now because I've really got other projects I need to work on for a little bit. But in reality, 
what God is revealing to the Israelites, what he's confronting them with is that delayed obedience is disobedience. We don't barter with God. When God tells us something to do, we do it. All the resources we have, our time, talent, money, and other material blessings, they belong to God. He created them, he created us, and he gave us this, these gifts. And so when we, when we bend and twist and, and do all types of theological gymnastics to convince ourselves it's okay to use resources God's given us primarily for our own satisfaction, we're not only delaying obedience, we, like the Israelites, are at that point walking in open disobedience. Or we're telling the Creator, I'm a better steward of creation than you are. So what has God given us? How are we stewarding that for His kingdom? Are we stewarding our resources in a way that seeks first to honor God and to build His kingdom? Or are we focused so intently on the cream and sugar of life that outsiders would be confused when we say, this is what it looks like to serve the Lord? Israel had not yet acquired a taste for the things of God. They were focused on appetites and cravings that they'd been called to leave behind. And this inconsistency revealed their hearts. Their delayed obedience was disobedience. Well, although Israel is not obeying the Lord, they're, they're not just sitting on their hands. They're not lazy. They're doing stuff. God tells Israel, don't just think about your disobedience. Consider the ways, consider the things that you have been trying. Think about what you've been doing. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God, God tells Israel, you haven't only delayed obedience, you, you haven't just been inconsistent in your words and deeds. You've actually tried to control your environment to create an existence for yourself that's void of me, and you've come up empty. I, I, I'm not sure about Michigan. In North Carolina, we would call this the definition of insanity. Has any, anybody heard this before? The definition of insanity? It's, it's trying the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. Right? The Israelites have been doing all these things, and God's saying, you, your food doesn't make you full, your drink doesn't make you full, your clothing doesn't warm you up, your, your money, you put it to the side, and, and then you look around and it's gone. Israel is in the process of learning a really hard truth, a, a truth that we would affirm with our mouths today, but oftentimes are guilty of ignoring in practice. We don't control anything. We can't control anything. God has fought, or Israel has fallen into the rhythms of everyday life. Not only have they built and settled into houses for themselves, but they're, they're sowing, they're eating, they're drinking, they're creating clothes for themselves, they're earning wages. It, we see that in this list, it's not for a lack of time that Israel has been ignoring what God's told them to do. It's not that they were short on time. They've just chosen to spend that time attempting to build paradise for themselves instead of a house for God. Before, before we go off too hard on Israel, let me ask three questions. These are three, three important questions for this morning. First, would the temple of God contain God? No. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon's dedicating the first temple, and he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. God wasn't homeless. He, he, he couldn't be contained by any temple that Israel could construct. Okay? Number two, 
Does God need Israel's resources to build his temple? Were there resources that Israel had access to that God didn't? No. Psalm 50, he says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that, that the birds and everything in the field are his. He has no lack of anything. He wasn't saying, man, I really want to build my temple, but Israel's got my stuff. No. Does God want his people, third question, does he want his people to be perpetual nomads? Does God want his people to be homeless? No. From Abraham to Joseph to Moses and, and Joshua, God has been calling his people for hundreds of years to a homeland, to a place flowing with milk and honey where they could establish themselves, where they could serve him and live with everything that they needed. He doesn't want them to be homeless. So if the answer to all these questions is no, then why, why is God upset, right? Hey, he couldn't be contained by the temple even if they built it. He, he doesn't need their stuff to build it. God could say, hey, 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 woods, I need a temple. And the trees would uproot themselves, walk into the town square and build a temple. He doesn't want them to be homeless. Why is he upset? God's upset because there's a way that we can chase after good things. Things that God may even want us to have that puts God in the rearview mirror and Jeremiah would say, in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to man and in the end, it leads to death. God isn't upset that the Israelites have enough, enough wealth to attend to their own needs. He isn't upset that they have homes. He's upset because they've worked to accomplish and acquire these things while neglecting him and what he's asked them to do. Jesus addresses this very thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells those listening to consider the birds and the flowers Specifically, think about how they have everything that they need. And he says in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He doesn't say you're wrong to need food or drink. He doesn't say, man, you're ungrateful to think that you need these things. No, in fact, Jesus says that God knows that you need them. What he says is that you're wrong to be anxious and to seek after those things more urgently, more diligently, more desperately than you're seeking after the kingdom of God. But if you are seeking after the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all of these things are going to be added in as well. Not all the things that you want, but all the things that you need. Israel's issue here isn't that they were wrong for wanting homes. It wasn't that they were out of line for desiring sustenance or clothing or wages. It was that they were neglecting God in their search to provide for themselves when they should have been seeking God and His righteousness and allowed Him to provide for the secondary things. But before we're too quick to judge Israel for this, don't we fall into this same trap? Aren't we tempted, especially when it comes to our finances, to take care of ourselves first and, and give what's left to God instead of the other way around? I'm, I'm sure that Israel was planning on coming back to the temple, right? There, there's no indication that Israel had said, forget the temple, we're never going to do it. We're done with the temple. They just needed homes to live in while they built the temple. In order to do that, they needed food because they were going to get hungry while they were building, and so they needed crops because that's where the food comes from, and they needed clothing because they would get sunburned while they were tending the crops, 
and, and they needed drink because that's something that makes you really thirsty, and they needed money to buy all of those things. And before they knew it, Israel had acquired a taste for the secondary things while neglecting the first thing, God himself, his kingdom, his righteousness. Tim Keller used to talk about it this way, that there, there are first things and second things. If we run after the second things, they, they'll never satisfy us. We'll always wind up hungry, thirsty, cold, holes in our pockets, all of those things. We have no real control over them. They'll slip through our fingers. Even if we keep them for the rest of our lives, we're going to lose them as soon as we die. We have no real control over second things. And in our search of second things, we're going to lose the first thing, God. But if we go after the first thing, we do have access to him. We can get to him, and we can keep him forever. And he promises to throw the second things in for free. Not everything we want, but everything that we need. So if this is you this morning, maybe you've been putting all of your effort, all of your finances into a search for second things. Maybe, maybe you give some of your resources, some of your finances to the Lord. If there's stuff left over at the end of the month, that's great. But you have found that you really have no control over the things that you're running after. They don't satisfy. The market crashes. The crops wither. There's no food, drink, or clothes that satisfy your appetite. What should you do next? How do we acquire a taste for generosity, a taste for obedience, specifically in our finances? How did Israel acquire a taste? Further down in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people of Israel with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and of Judah, and, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of their host, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. What did Israel do? When they're, they're confronted by their inconsistency, they, they realize they've been disobedient, they realize they can't control any of this, what do they do? They obeyed. They heard the word of the Lord, and they responded in obedience to what he was calling them to do. Uh, did, they, did they do this because their hearts suddenly wanted to build the house of the Lord more than anything else? Does it say that God's people woke up the next morning and said, oh, I can't wait to go chop down this, this lumber and start building the house of the Lord? No. They obeyed out of a fear of the Lord. And Proverbs tells us that's the beginning of wisdom. It says they obeyed, that they feared the Lord. And here's where we have something positive to learn from the Israelites. If we tie our obedience to our feelings, meaning we obey only when we feel like obeying, we find ourselves walking away from God's will instead of deeper into it. And these are the cultural waters that we swim in today, right? Do what feels right. Follow your heart. It's all about how we feel. And if we feel something, then we should do that thing. And if we don't feel something, we should not do that thing. 
this is a lie. And we know it's a lie in most areas, but it's so tempting in our finances to say, well, you know, I know that God loves a cheerful giver, and I don't feel cheerful, so I better just not give right now. God loves a cheerful giver, but he also loves an obedient giver more than someone who doesn't give at all because they're waiting for a feeling. Israel didn't suddenly feel cheerful about building the temple. They felt fear of the Lord and obedience. And when we are wise enough to do this, to fear the Lord, to recognize that he's God and we are not, we obey his voice, and then the Lord is kind and gracious to change our hearts. Obedience leads to heart change. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, an easy application of this is what we've been talking about. We, we don't have the ability to control what happens with our earthly investments, so invest in the heavenly kingdom instead. Those of us who are business-minded, this is easy math, right? If I said, here's one investment that is going to fail at some point. I don't know if it's in year one or year 80. Could be several years all throughout, but it's going to fail. And here's another investment that's never, ever, ever going to fail for all of eternity. Easy math, right? Okay, let's go with the one that doesn't fail for all of eternity. But what if instead of just practically, we read this with an eye on what concerns God the most, an eye on our hearts? God doesn't say your heart is wrong for being invested where your treasure is. In fact, he says that your heart will be where your treasure is. So where are we putting our treasure? There's practical reasons to give. Yes, you can't take your money or house or cars or anything that's in this life with you the next. So, of course, it makes more practical sense to invest it in things that can have an impact in the next world, namely God's church, people, and mission. But more than just practically, God wants your heart. If you're a follower of Christ, then you want God to have your heart. And here Jesus is telling you where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So take this as more than just instruction on where not to put your treasure. Take it as an opportunity to decide where your heart will be. If I was a believer in the prosperity gospel, right now I would probably start bouncing around to different pieces of Scripture and show you how, man, Israel obeyed, and their houses were even bigger and better, and their crops were richer and fuller, and they were satisfied, and everything was good, and it'll be the same for you, right? No. Haggai doesn't paint that picture for us. Scripture doesn't paint that picture for us. Israel, led by Zerubbabel and Joshua, obey out of a fear of the Lord. And then after they're already obeying, God tells them two things. He tells them one thing and he does another. He says, I'm with you. And then he stirs their heart towards greater obedience. Another translation of that stirs your heart says that he encourages and excites them about what they're doing. Israel decided to invest their resources in the things of God instead of in their own personal kingdoms. And the blessing was twofold. God's presence 
and hearts stirred towards greater obedience. And this is why giving can be an acquired taste. It starts not with a love for giving. You don't wake up, maybe you did, maybe you did and praise the Lord. If you woke up one morning and you just said, I can't wait to give money to the church, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. For a lot of us, that's not our experience. We didn't wake up one morning and said, man, I just can't wait to let go of this money that I've worked hard to get. But what we did was we obeyed and we put our treasure towards God's heavenly kingdom and he tells us where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so the more that we do this, the more that our hearts change and we begin to get excited about this. Our hearts are stirred. The Lord uses that to mold and shape us and obedience leads to heart change. This is like the saying about how do you get men to build boats? Has anybody ever heard this? How do you get men to build boats? You teach them to long for the sea. You don't get men to build boats by saying, hey, love building boats, build a boat. You point out at the ocean and say, wouldn't it be cool if we could sail out there? It's the same with giving. We don't give because we just get in the mirror and we look ourselves in the face and we say, love giving, do it. Oh, we say, wouldn't it be awesome to step into the calling that God's placed on our lives, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and to trust that he's going to change my heart as I do that. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, Lake, I am giving it all that I have. I've made sacrifices. My family's made sacrifices. We've given sacrificially. We've given our first and our best, even when it hurts. And I've got great news. Well done. I'm not talking to you this morning. Thank you for your sacrificial giving and your obedience to Christ. The Lord has used faithful saints like you to build and sustain Highland Park Baptist Church for over 100 years, and he's going to continue using you to do just that. But if as you've been here this morning, you've said, oh, maybe that is me, or oh, I haven't thought about this in a while, Maybe you've been distracted. Maybe you've put your hope in the wrong things. Maybe it's not even something that happened consciously. You were, you were here, you missed a Sunday where you got paid, and then you forgot your checkbook the next week, and then a couple weeks went by in a couple months, and before you knew it, you had fallen out of the spiritual discipline of giving. A, a really practical next step uh, is to set up online giving. Now, I, I know the objection. Writing out a check, you think about it as you do it, you, you can put it in the plate, and, and that's part of worship. And if you do that consistently, and that's easy for you, great. Again, not who I'm talking to. But if we find it's a struggle at times to remember. It's a struggle to remember to bring a checkbook. It's a struggle to remember to go get cash out of the ATM, however it is that you do it. And we also remember that it's not a feeling that we're chasing, it's obedience then maybe that's a good next step. Whatever your plan is, this is for sure. Just like Israel, we are called to invest in God's kingdom more than our own. And we will be held accountable for how we steward the things that God gives us. So have we delayed obedience? Have we been inconsistent in word and deed? Let's choose today what we're going to tie our hearts to and acquire a taste for his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, 
we are so thankful that you invite us into generosity. We're thankful that you have the power to change our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would help us to fear you, to obey you, and to love you and follow you and your righteousness with all we've got. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.